This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to Drilled. I'm your host, Amy Westervelt. We're working on our next investigative series. It's now going to come out in January, but trust me, the wait will be worth it. In the meantime, we're bringing you updates on some of the other climate lawsuits going on, some of the cases that we've mentioned in the past. Today, reporter Emily Gertz is joining us. Emily publishes a newsletter, Deregulation Nation, that tracks the Trump administration's environmental rollbacks. She also contributes to Drilled quite a bit. And today, Emily looked at two different cases where children are demanding climate action through the U.S. courts and international law. Emily, thanks for being here. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to be here. So first, I feel like I should say that these quote unquote children are now all like teens and 20 year olds. But <laughs> Most of them in, in the first case we're going to talk about, yes, quite a few of them are, are no longer minors, but but some of them still are. Some of them still are. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's look at this case that's working its way through the federal courts. This is the one that we've been hearing about for the last few years, Juliana versus United States. Yeah. This story begins back in August of 2015. That's when this group of 21 young people, all of them at the time were 18 or younger, sued the United States over climate change. The named plaintiff in the case, who was 19 at the time, is from Eugene, Oregon, and named Kelsey Juliana. So they filed the suit in federal district court in Eugene, Oregon, and it's the name of the the case became Juliana versus United States. The main charge that these young people are bringing is that by promoting the continued production and use of fossil fuels, the U.S. government has, quote, violated their fundamental constitutional rights to freedom from deprivation of life, liberty, and property, unquote. Uh, I spoke with one of the youth plaintiffs named Nathan Baring, who was 15 then and is 20 now. And he told me about why he got involved in the case. I was born in Fairbanks, Alaska. Um, I am actually a third generation Alaskan. Um, So my grandparents moved up before statehood and my mom was also born in a small coastal fishing village. Um, And essentially I, to sum it up, I I was very involved in local um, environmental issues that were disconnected from climate change for a few years. Um, I wrote my first letter to the editor when I was 13 about actually air quality um, that was connected to wood smoke from uh, wood stoves. Um, So that was just a human, a completely local human problem that um, had nothing to do with climate change. But as I got more involved in those, in that kind of advocacy, I quickly um, realized that the most pressing environmental challenge that Alaska and the Arctic was facing uh, was climate change, um, especially when, you know, the figure that the Arctic is warming twice as fast as the rest of the world hit me. I realized that, you know, we might lose this Arctic identity before, you know, the end of my lifetime. What changes have you seen in your lifetime in your part of Alaska? Sure. Um, 
and I don't even, you know, I don't even have to keep it only into my lifetime, but certainly in the amount of, in the time that my parents have been there, you know, it's very pronounced how much milder and warmer and wetter the winters have gotten. Um, you know, the prevalence of uh, winter ice storms, which, you know, when the Chinook winds will blow in from the south um, and it'll go from, you know, 20 below to 32 above overnight, basically, and then it'll rain and then it will freeze again. Um, it coats the whole ground and everything in a thick layer of ice, um, which is, you know, detrimental to all conditions of life. So that would include things like, you know, driving that will usually cancel school for that kind of thing. Um you know, there's tons of problems um, in other areas of the state um, with things like permafrost melt um, that are very connected to infrastructure, but of course, even more connected to the climate as a whole, as methane is, a, is four times as potent of a greenhouse gas as, you know, carbon dioxide. So when that permafrost melts, it's releasing all of that methane into the atmosphere. Um, and, you know, Alaska is such a state that we practically have like four or five different climates up there. So when you look at places like on the coast, we're seeing how the salmon runs are being affected by the warming oceans and the ocean acidification that's coming as a result of climate change. And then when you look up north, um, especially in the northwest, where this is really pronounced, we're seeing how um, the loss of sea ice and the formation of sea ice later in the year is, um, is leading to horrific coastal erosion that is actually taking entire indigenous communities that have been there for centuries um, just right away into the ocean so that they're forced to relocate. I'm just going to jump in here to underscore the point of the case because it gets it has been misreported so many times as suing the government for not acting on climate change, which is not what it is right. it's suing them for you know continuing to subsidize fossil fuel production continuing to create and and adopt policies that tie us to automotive transportation as like the sole mode of transportation all of that stuff so it's it's really like the the moves that the government has made to lock us into a fossil fueled economy not failing to act on climate change which is is how it has been reported a lot of times and I still see people saying that today. Yeah, and that, that is actually a point that when I speak to legal experts about this case and when I've spoken to the lead lawyer in the case, Julia Olson, that is a point mm -hmm. they, they try to get out that this isn't, this case isn't about failure to act. This case is about actually taking actions that are, violating the constitutional rights of the plaintiffs. Yeah, yeah. So that's Nathan Baring, one of the youth plaintiffs, describing the effects of climate change that he and his parents have already seen in Alaska. Uh, several of the plaintiffs, like Kelsey, who are from Oregon, have experienced intense droughts and wildfires. And another is a New Yorker who experienced the blackout caused by Hurricane Sandy. The youngest plaintiff in this case is a 12-year-old boy, he's 12 now, who lives in a Florida wow. barrier island, and they're dealing with algal blooms and more intense storms driven by warming oceans. So this is not theoretical. This isn't in the future. These children are growing up, and young people are experiencing their young adulthoods with the impacts of climate change actively affecting their lives for the worse. That's really fascinating. And especially it, it really um, 
it's kind of striking that he's he's 12 now so he was seven years old when this case was initially brought that's incredible okay so these kids are suing the government for keeping policies in place that are harming them and by extension all children by making climate change worse what's the legal question at stake right here's john schwartz a new york times climate reporter who's been covering this case and he describes it very clearly from your perspective as a reporter what is the nut of this litigation? The question they're trying to get answered is, is there a constitutional right to a healthy climate, to, uh, to a climate that doesn't veer off into dangerous climate change with the sort of temperature changes and extreme weather and the stuff we're starting to see now and which we will be seeing much, much more of as time goes on if we don't take the kind of action that's necessary to to fight it. So why not sue the producers of oil, coal, and natural gas, like some of the communities that we've talked about and talked to on Drilled? Well, Julia Olson, the lead lawyer in the case, that which is to say the lead lawyer for the youth plaintiffs, says that they've sued the government because ultimately it's the government's active support of fossil fuels that violates the constitutional rights of these young people. Here's how Julia Olson explains that. Well, as a lawyer, I'm looking at the party most responsible for causing the harm, and I'm also looking at the, the remedy that's available to really stop the climate emergency from worsening and to begin to redress it so that we can protect these fundamental life support resources for these young people. And when I look at the party most responsible, it is the United States government, historically and presently, because of the government's creation of, promotion of, support of a national fossil fuel energy system. And now, you know, particularly under this administration, a push to be what the president calls energy dominant in the world. And in this administration's view, that means fossil fuel energy dominant, you know, promoting and facilitating the extraction and exportation of our domestic fossil fuel resources so that the rest of the world can continue using them as well as us use them domestically. So the case is about the government's affirmative acts that have put these young people in a position of danger and continue to act in ways that are enhancing the danger for young people. I think it's a question of, of intergenerational injustice. I think it's discriminating against the young people living today, but also all future generations and people who aren't even yet born yet. So really interesting thing about this case, alongside this big new question that it's asking about a constitutional right to a livable climate, is that it's still in court at all. <laughs> it's been, <laughs> there's like, so many people have tried to get this thrown out. The, the Obama administration tried to have it dismissed without any hearings or a trial. And so has the Trump administration. But federal judges have rejected those attempts. And the Supreme Court also turned the Trump Justice Department down when it tried to leapfrog over the lower courts to get it thrown out, which is a real indication that like, you know, the court system wants to see this case. Yeah, that's right. 
it's even more amazing considering that the fossil fuel industry initially joined the government to try and stop the case. In that process, the government and the industry essentially agreed with the kids that climate change is real. Uh, a fact that may surprise some people who are activists in this realm, but they did allow that that was true. Climate change is real and it's a huge threat to the well-being of these young people. But what the government and the fossil fuel industry jointly argued at that point was that the government has no constitutional duty to do anything about that. So the trial is not about whether climate change is real. It's about whether the, cons the constitution can be read to guarantee people the right to a stable climate, you might say, the right to a climate in which they can pursue life and liberty and happiness. I mean, it really feels to me like the, the life part is pretty valid. Like people are dying already. All the projections are showing that that is going to be part of climate change. And yeah, it's really, it, it is, it's really interesting. Okay. So fast forward to June, 2017, fossil fuel industry drops out of the case. Do we know why? Well, we don't know exactly why, but we can speculate. From their perspective at that point, it may have become too risky to stay on board with the government because at that point it became more likely that the case was going to go to trial. When the case goes to trial, of course, all the parties become subject to pretrial discovery, which for the industry might have well meant giving Julia Olson, this uh, lawyer for the youth plaintiffs, materials you know, internal company documents about climate change or policy lobbying, whatever's relevant to the case. And this could be stuff they'd rather keep private and therefore from their perspective, getting off the case at that point may have made more sense. Hmm. Okay, so where does Juliana versus the United States stand now? Well, this past June, lawyers for both sides appeared at a hearing before a three-judge panel, a federal three-judge panel. The judges asked them both a lot of tough questions about climate change and about the legal basis for the case to go to trial. And now we're waiting for their decision. John Schwartz of the New York Times, who I spoke to about the case, says there's really no way to know whether or not the judges will allow the case to go to trial. There are many things that can happen then as they say with a forward pass. You know, three things can happen. Two of them are bad. The, the case can get derailed. It can go back down to the district court so and the trial can begin. Or they can make it or they can issue their decision and either or the other side will appeal to the United States Supreme Court. Again, it's been before the Supreme Court twice on these interlocutory motions, on these appeals that come up before you even get to start the trial. So there's an equally exciting international case going on, right? This is involving Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg and a handful of other climate activists. Yep, yep. On the same day as the United Nations Climate Summit in September, Thunberg and 15 other young people from around the world filed a complaint with the United Nations against five countries. Uh, those countries are Argentina, Brazil, France, Germany, and Turkey. And 
the complaint that these young people have made, and these this group of people is aged 8 to 17, they state that by continuing to promote fossil fuels and failing to curb carbon emissions fast enough, that these countries are threatening their lives and future livelihoods which they say violates their human rights under a very specific international treaty called the Convention of the Rights of the Child. That's super interesting. So as you were saying the list of countries, I was like, why wasn't the United States included in this? But it's, of course, because the United States hasn't signed on to the Convention of the Rights of the Child. Right. I mean... Uh, which is, yeah. uh, you know, which I mean, isn't specific to that treaty. The U.S. actually doesn't sign on to many international treaties because of the feeling that uh, it would be handing off sovereignty uh, of uh, domestic policy to foreign entities. So, yeah. So, so I mean, it, it feels especially morally glaring that we're not signed on to this, you know, a treaty protecting the rights of children. But in, in international <laughs> terms, unfortunately, it's not that unusual. <laughs> okay, so um, this sound, this case sounds pretty similar to the Giuliana complaint, is it? Or are they making a totally different argument? There, there are some at least superficial similarities between this international case and the Juliana versus United States case. Both groups of children are making similar accusations that governments are actively doing things right now that are going to intensify future climate change and that they're doing them despite knowing that those actions will make things worse for the children who are alive today and worse than they might otherwise have to be if the government was ramping down climate emissions sooner. Um, I spoke with Ramin Pijan of Earth Justice, one of the co-counsels in this United Nations complaint, and here's how he contrasts the two cases. First of all, the Juliana case is extremely important, and and um, our case really is is a supplement to that case. Um, these those kind of cases where children are bringing or challenging actions um, and and inactions of, of their respective governments in their countries is, is very important. Um, and our case is, is a little bit different. Um, and I think the first difference is in, in the case of Juliana, we haven't named the United States as a party um, because, as I said earlier, they, they have not agreed to this, this treaty, the only country in the world that has not agreed to it. Um, the other really big difference is that we are bringing – a claim. These these petitioners, these these youths, are bringing a claim against five countries together, um, which means that for them to do that at the at the national level, they would need to bring five different cases in five different countries. And we argue that that's really burdensome and costly. But not only that, if they were to bring a case in Brazil, they could not challenge the actions or inactions of, for example, Turkey through Brazilian court cases because of, of foreign sovereign immunity principles. So the type of case that we're bringing is, is sort of directed at five countries. It would be too hard to bring them in each country. But then also from a legal perspective, we're making arguments about international cooperation and the need for each of these countries that we have brought the case against to do more at the international level to ensure that other polluters are also reducing their emissions. So that that particular claim is a little bit different than the, typically the kind of claims that 
um, are brought at the national level courts. So that was Ramin Pijan. According to him, these five countries are significant in three ways, the five countries that are named in this complaint. They're among the biggest historical and current greenhouse gas emitters. Each has agreed that children from their countries can make human rights complaints against them and seek justice under the human rights of the child treaty. And each of these countries is a member of the G20 group of major economic powers. So if the UN fines against them here and they curb their support for fossil fuels as a result, it might put some sort of pressure on other wealthy nations to follow suit. Yeah, is that like a fair assumption? That's that's the working assumption as best I can take away. Some nations take following these UN agreements more seriously than the US often seems to do. Or at least they don't like being called out publicly on not following them. Pijan and his co-counsel, Michael Hosfeld, say that they would not have brought this suit. Uh, Excuse me, it's not a suit, it's a complaint. They would not have brought this complaint if they didn't think it could ultimately pressure big carbon polluters to work harder and faster to get off fossil fuels. That's super interesting. Um, I imagine that the fact that Greta has become world famous probably helps with the the kind of public shaming or, or like call out on this too. Who are some of the other kids that have joined this complaint? Well, this is truly a global group of people. There are two Swedes, Greta and an eight-year-old Sami reindeer herder named Ellen Ann. And the other kids in this complaint come from Argentina, Brazil, France, Germany, India, Palau, the Marshall Islands, Nigeria, South Africa, Tunisia, and the United States. Wow, that's an incredible group. So there are American kids on this complaint too. How does that work if if they're not, um, I don't know, like do the, do the complainants have to be from some of the countries that are, are being um, charged here? Yeah, you know, actually that's a good question of why they um, found some plaintiffs from the United States to join this complaint when the U.S. isn't a signatory on the treaty. Uh, and, and to be honest, I would have to follow up to learn more about that. One of those Americans, though, is Carl Smith. He's a 17-year-old UPAC from Western Alaska. Like Ellen Ann, the Swedish Sami girl, He's an indigenous person whose ancient way of life depends on a reliably colder climate, and they both live in or near the Arctic, which has already warmed up much faster than most of the rest of the world. There's another American on the case. Her name is Alexandria Villasenor. She's 14, and she's also a Fridays for Future school strike leader here in New York City. And she and I talked about why she's part of this case. Yeah, so I guess what had actually made me get involved in organizing and becoming a climate activist was I was visiting family back in Northern California, where I was born and raised. And I was visiting family when the Paradise Fire broke out. And so Paradise had quickly became the worst wildfire in California's history. And many people died and lost their loved ones, and a lot of homes were destroyed. And so I was so close to this fire, and I was seeing what was happening to the community around us. And as well, experiencing that smoke, the smoke was seeping into my house. It was inflaming my asthma and making me very sick. And seeing how people were in the community were handing out these face masks to keep out 
the harmful particles from the smoke, but the face mask didn't actually keep out what was harmful to you. It was actually, you weren't protecting yourself from the, from the effects. And so that shows how we are so unprepared to really protect ourselves from the climate crisis. And so because of how I was in such a safe, unsafe situation, my family had to send me back to New York City early. And at that point, once I got back, I was really upset and I wanted to get involved and I wanted to do something about it. And so I started to research the effects of the climate crisis and I started to research wildfires. And I saw the connection between climate change and California's wildfires. And because of that, that made me want to take action and really do something and make my voice heard. And only after seeing Greta Thunberg speak at COP24 is what made me know what I could do and what I could really do to make my voice heard. And so that is why I started my weekly climate strike on December 14th of 2018. And it was after seeing how the climate crisis is affecting my hometown, but also seeing how the climate crisis is hitting people all around the world. So COP24, which she mentions there, was the 2018 International Climate Treaty Conference in Poland, which didn't really move the needle on global climate action. Right. It was a letdown, just like September's UN Climate Summit. And just like the Poland meeting, it's what young people and not nations did at these meetings that seems to have had the biggest impact so far in terms of building support to slash fossil fuels. So what comes next with this UN children's case? Well, now we're waiting to hear if the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child takes up the case. If they do, they'll start investigating the charges that the young people have made. And that could include getting testimony from the kids and others on the climate effects of continuing to promote the use of fossil fuels. Eventually, this committee will release its findings about whether or not the five nations have violated these kids' rights and what needs to happen if they have. Uh, the two co-counsels, uh, Pajan and Hausfeld, say that these sorts of human rights investigations can take a year or more, but they're hopeful that given the severity that the climate crisis is already showing, that the committee will recognize that this is urgent and that they will work faster. Okay, that's all super interesting. Thanks, Emily. Keep us posted on what happens next in both these cases. Will do. Okay, that's it for this episode. We'll have a couple more bonus episodes for you in December, and then we will go dark for a few weeks and bring you season three in January. Stay tuned for that, and we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. Drilled is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency. The show was created and reported by me. Our music is by Martin Wissenberg. You can find Drilled wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to drop us a rating or review. It really helps us find new listeners.